want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. Welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. I'm Josh. And I'm Nat. And this week... Twice in one day, actually. We're yeah. down in Geelong, second podcast of the day. We're joined by Paul. G'day, I'm Paul. I am a social worker in a hospital, acute hospital um, in Victoria. And um, yeah, I'm just glad to be speaking for the the, the discipline in, in health, I guess. Yeah, I'll try, try and cover it a bit. Certainly no expert on anything in particular, but certainly know a little bit about a few things. So. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate the time. Absolutely. Um, go for it. Yeah, I was about to say, we start off our podcast. Just stealing the lines, Josh. Um, so the first, we obviously start every podcast with a bunch of questions. The first mm-hmm. one we'll start off with is, what was your first ever job? So going way, way back, my first ever job was delivering newspapers once a week, just uh, people's houses. And I did um, a good little strip on one of the um, sort of shopping mall sort of strips. That was really cool because I was a pretty um, quiet kid and um, a little bit sheltered maybe, but it sort of kind of forced me to speak to these shop owners once a week and deliver them the paper and, you know, over a couple of years got to talk about. Um, ended up doing delivering chemist sort of medications after that from one of the shops. They got me onto that. And then, yeah, then did the supermarket thing like a lot of other people and the rest is history. You know? yeah. But, but, yeah, humble newspaper boy. Which is so funny. Yeah, I know you're going to say the same thing. You're the third, I think yeah. I'm talking about a third person that's done the newspaper run. Yeah. But have you noticed that there's a consistent theme that everyone so far that's been on the podcast and has answered these set of questions have worked as soon as they could? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The minute like, they could. Yeah, yeah, we haven't got anyone that's like, oh, I finished school and then I got a job. Like everybody mm. is like 14, nine months. Like that's as soon as they go. could, I got a job. Paper round, even mm. stuff that was unofficial work. Tells you something, right? Yeah. Like that um, work ethic of people, mm. especially in this field. Like, I, I don't know what it'd be for the other people. For me, it was definitely about trying to get some income into the family. Mm. You know, trying to have. Um, I was the oldest um, of three boys. I had an older sister. But she was doing different things, and I think yeah, very very much a lot of got to get out, get earn, um, earn some money, and, and then bring it into the home and contribute. And yeah, very early on. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with it now. I think the next time someone says that they weren't doing paper runs, I'll be disappointed. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> a so collection. Well, the yeah. chemist one was a good one because you'd yeah. sort of deliver medicines to. Um, I had no idea what they were then, and you know. Um, yeah, no idea the street value you had. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> you would have been big bucks. And uh, yeah, always good around Christmas time too. They'd be handing out their little um, five oh. cent coins or whatever for uh, yeah. tips and. 
sometimes you get a $2 coin in that little stash. You know? So sweet. <laughs> How old were you when you were doing the medication deliveries? I uh, would have been about 13, 14. That's hilarious, wow. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like if you think about, and I don't know what it is, you probably know, Paul, but the, I guess, security and structure and process around medication mm. being delivered to different places, even just to a person's home now, there must be yeah. signing in, signing out, dosage. Mm. Like, Seeing what happens here on the ward, it's intense, yeah. you know. Like they account for every single thing. So. Yeah. Did you just throw it at their door like a newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open your mouth. Just yeah. keg it. Hoy it over. No, but there were some addresses you were keen to see on your list because you knew that they were... Um, Good little tippers, so yeah. yeah. Nice. I would have just made friends with all the old people. Yeah, that you would, I reckon. Yeah, love the oldies. Um, well, it's a more serious point. Yep. If you were a WWE wrestler, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. would be your walkout song? Yeah, I've been. Um, how do you narrow it down? I think <laughs> I've been going through this one a little bit in my head, um, and speaking to the kids about it as well. Um, my favourite band of all time is Tool. Um, yes. And um, great nice. that people know Tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, been to all their concerts in more recent, well, yeah, for a long time. But 46 and 2 is a song that's, um, I reckon, their favorite, um, their best. It's certainly my favorite. And when I was thinking about this, it's like, yeah, well, what do they even say in the words? I, I had no idea, really, because a lot of these sort of louder, heavier songs, you're sort of, you're not quite sure what he's really talking about. Mm. Um, but it was very much about looking in, in internally within yourself, a bit of Jung theory stuff um, around shadow work and. Um, I guess evolving as people maybe is how I take it. So, mm-hmm. and it's got a really good because um, I'm a, you know when you're doing the W E thing you got yeah. to kind of march down and do the strut and um, <laughs> I think it's not usually my style but it would be helped by um, that sort of intro into that song. It's a really good one. Yeah. Um, but if it wasn't available, yeah. I mean, there's always system of a down something there that I could really just kind of yeah. fire up and yeah. But Are you anyway. saying if it wasn't available because Tool held on to their rights? Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the joke? Yeah. It's, um, True. Well, there's a bit of that. Yeah. If they weren't happy with me using it in that that uh, setting, and yeah, yeah. yeah. I reckon <laughs> they'd be down for it, surely. Yeah. Yeah. A revival. The next one is uh, if you had to change careers, what would you do? Yeah. So again, so many. Uh, but this year's been really. I mean, this year, last year. Um, oh, we're in that abyss, right? That, that like, space. How is it? The last 12 months has been really interesting. Um, and I, I mean, it's been horrible for a lot of people. But one thing that it got me doing was getting out, really valuing the time that I get outside of home and work and everything. But also then valuing work time. But really started just going out to the bush and getting you know, going off the path and getting lost in um, the bush and the mm. forest and um, just reconnecting because I always like little you know mushrooms when I go for a walk there's so many different things out there and um, I think yeah just got really down this um, uh, rabbit hole of podcasts and, and mushroom hunting stuff that's just been amazing and uh, I just wish I knew stuff about that so if there was a career path change mm. uh, it'd probably something mycology related or um at least just, you know, maybe get out in the garden and do something a little bit more earthy. It yeah. just sort of helps ground me, I think, um, when I get lost in the concrete jungle and mm. just nice. So, yeah. Which it, is very easy to do. I think we mm. take for granted being in sort of nature and out and mm. about, particularly if we when, mm. when you work in such a high-density area and you mm. are in the concrete jungle. I think we mm. um, 
take that for granted. That's mm. for sure. Mm. Yeah. We did that this morning sitting on the beach. It was yeah. beautiful. Mm. It's perfect. Mm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, anything that connects me to that. Yeah, I like mm. it. Uh, could you tell us about a time at work that you've made a mistake and what have you learned from it? I've made so many mistakes throughout my time, starting way back when I was a youth worker um, in 2001. Um, yeah, some that I, yeah, I certainly couldn't talk to. They were just, yeah, just sometimes it's just it's silly stuff too when you're young yourself and you're out at the out of the pub and you just see a, a, a client there and it's like, hey, and, and just be a dickhead. And I'm just, just like, why the fuck did I do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, do, you know, how do you maintain any credibility when um, they're coming to you for, you know, because the court sent them to alcohol support or something, you know? Um, but I think, you know, when, when you're young and doing youth work, those things happen. Um, mm. And you just, you know, find a way to move forward. Probably the most, um, one of the sort of more relevant to the health setting one is I, uh, I used to do a bit of work in an inpatient rehab centre as part of the same sort of place where I work and um, um, doing some, I guess, post-acute health. Um, I might talk to the whole context of health a little bit further uh, in a minute, but um, supporting a, a husband, a, a, a patient's um, husband and, and the family around this really traumatic, horrible, you know, scenario where the, where the person was surviving but barely and the the husband had asked oh, are they are they giving them any antidepressants and I couldn't find the doctor but I had the notes and I could see there was an antidepressant that they were giving and and uh, and uh, I said yeah yeah yeah, yeah they're, they're doing this um, absolutely and um, that annoyed them for a number of different reasons which are hard to explain but that sort of I didn't think much of that at the time and then it sort of got raised in one of the regular team meetings where they talk about how everyone's goals are going and who's done what and uh, it was a great opportunity for the the head doctor the consultant to um, who knew but took the opportunity to um, pull it out of out in in a oh, what's happened here thing and just absolutely drilled me you know in front of the room for uh, talking outside of my skill set and um, that they weren't you know, unbeknownst to me, because I was, you know, a bit younger and stupid, um, thinking, you know, they weren't using the medication just for, for antidepressant reason. There's, yeah. there's other reasons they would use it, and in that case, it was around appetite. And uh, so I was like, oh, fuck, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't think I was in that team for much longer. It was a bit tense. And, <laughs> but uh, you learn, and um, it's and one of the big things about working in health is you've got to you got to work in a team. Yeah. Um, you have to. And um, it's good when it's a multidisciplinary team and everybody's doing their parts as disciplines. Um, and that's really great. Um, sometimes it can be really beautiful um, when it's more interprofessional. Um, but you've got to have a team that can do that. Mm. So you don't sort of start to delve into other people's areas unless you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that discipline's comfortable for you too as well. Um, mm. So yeah, big mistake. No, you know, nobody died, I guess, which is also a, a relevant thing to say in, in health. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I still feel, feel like I'm going red even just talking about it. Still, it still brings it up a little bit for me. But hmm. that's, that's part of it. 
yeah, yeah, a good lesson to learn as well. Like you said, no one died, but also a, I think it's it's like the stepping blocks. I feel like everybody does that within their mm. new role. You you mm. learn bits and bobs as you go, because mm. um, it wouldn't necessarily be something they're going to hand you in an induction booklet, being like, oh, if they ask you about antidepressants, don't say anything. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting to hear everybody's different um, experiences with mistakes mm. and how they've how that's impacted them. Everything's learning, like yeah. And I we say that to students. You know, because they'll, you know, students are stuffing up all the time. That's part of it. You're asking dumb questions that you're meant to. Um, and, you know, mistakes, that, you know, because we get all proud now that we've been in the field for a long time and, we have, you know, we couldn't possibly make mistakes. No, like, we always make, still make mistakes. Mm. Um, and it, But it's what you do with it and how you learn. Yeah. And how you, yeah, change your practice if you need to. Yeah. Um, and, you know. I think you guys have spoken about rupture and repair with, um, mm. with kids. It's uh, there's a bit of team stuff there with uh, the the big egos that we work with here sometimes too. You know, might have to do a bit of repair work. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think rupture and repair works important in any relationship, mm. um, particularly teammates. Mm. The last one uh, is: What are your self care strategies, and do you think you implement them well? I love that you guys are doing this question. I think it's fantastic, um, and I think uh, you know the the. Sometimes self-care as a concept can become very rhetorical mm. and everyone's got their, oh yeah, yeah, I do this, I do this, I do this. So for me, my short answer will always be, oh yeah, like I listen to music on my way home and I make sure that I derobe from my stuff and you know, if I need to have a, a shower, if it's been particularly heavy, I have to. But um, you know, that's that just kind of keeps the conversation moving on. Mm. Really what, um, and I do that well, mm. but we can all do that and still be struggling heaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when I'm, um, struggling, I need to certainly pay more attention to my inner voice um, and give it some time. Um, and I think it's been something that's sort of come out for me more in the last, say, five to uh, seven years, just to be reaching out to my own GP, um, building a rapport there, getting some counselling when I've needed it at different times, um, because the work's really hard. Mm. and our lives continue on as well and you know we're busy people and sometimes it's, it's just not possible to be okay you know it's, yeah. and it's important to be able to feel confident or, or brave or whatever to to say no and so a big part of that for me has been over the years sort of evolved like moving myself into an area in teams that I feel confident um, and I guess you know safe to share that I'm not going well. So mm. in some teams that you work in, you won't feel that no. necessarily. So as you get older, you kind of gravitate towards a place or an area that you feel that you're going to be able to do that. And you seek out leadership. Um, if you're not happy with the supervision that you've got, if you can't be honest with them, then you f- you find a place that you and a supervisor that you can. Mm. Um, because often we say, oh, you know, don't forget to look, you know, get looking after yourself. Uh, don't forget to look after yourself. But that's something that you've got to do over there. Yeah, like, I don't need to me. make space for you to look after yourself. You just have to look after yourself. So it's important that when you're coming into work, it's, you're going into a place that you want to be going to and that you can, on another day, call up and go, I'm really sorry, but shit's doing my head in. Um, kids are driving me nuts, the ex, whatever. Mm. Um and you know we've all got family stuff you know yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's once you scratch the surface around the place everybody has so if there's anyone out there who's 
carrying this burden of this story and they think, oh, God, what if they find out that I've, you know, got these skeletons in my closet? Mm, and you are not alone. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> does. So um, you're, you're only going to be the best to yourself and to the people that you're trying to support if you are listening to that, well, for me, listen to that internal voice that, uh, yeah, keeps me a bit more accountable than perhaps what I try and ignore it for a while and keep doing things. But, no, nah, you got to listen in and um, it's okay. Yeah. Mm. I like it. Very true. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, so, Paul, you're a member of the, the Facebook group. Yep. Um, and Lovely started, work. Thank you. <laughs> um, started listening to the podcast and then you reached out to, mm. to, the, to us and said, hey, you know, this is my jam and if you're interested, um, we'd love to have a chat. And, of course, we would and we're here. So, thank you. Mm. We always mm. bang on. If you're interested in coming on the podcast, if you know anyone that would be good, Get in touch and mm. someone listened. So yeah. we get a lot of other people. They're sort oh, of that like, one. Yeah. yeah, but you know, that's great. And that's what we want. You know, we want, yeah. the, we want the group to be something that people contribute to on the mm. podcast to be something that sort of like is involved in that circle mm. of the, the Facebook group, the mm. podcast, people mm. coming on, learning from that, taking the knowledge away, um, hands knowledge on tick and you know, here we are. So yeah, just, I just want to say thanks and yeah. thanks for reaching out and here we are. So And thanks to the people that have been on before me. I mean, li- listening through, it's it's just, there's something nostalgic for me about going back to some of the youth work stuff and when I've, the very few times I've gone in to uh, support someone who's um, been at Secure Welfare or been at, um, at Parkville, it's, it's, it's painting a picture that I remember and mm. um, um, from the sounds of things, it seems a bit more like the good old days. Um, but it's there's things that I've taken away. You know, that rupture repair language is not something that I'd heard before, and um, I've been, um, I guess, using it a bit myself. And yeah. um, I, I'm sure that's part of you know, um, youth work, um, you know, professional development stuff that's happening these days that I'm not necessarily hearing of. Mm. Um, and I think there's there's lots of opportunities around the place that with all the expertise that. The, maybe Australia has or Victoria has or Melbourne has within the discipline rather than us all having to go off and do individual training there's 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 a lot of internal knowledge and wisdom that we have and can share around and I think your platform is just perfect for that mm. and um, I think thank you for what you're doing and um, I mean even I was just listening yesterday to Ben from, from yeah oh my God, what, what a, a dude. dude. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Like, yeah. Stoked. Just hearing this guy, you know, and he's so young and, you know, this is the, this is the leader and, um, to, you know, you can imagine just being, working for him, you know, to be oh. in that sort of environment. Well, we joked. We said, do you have any jobs going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He goes, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but he's even um, Ben's, like, aura. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just his vibe. Yeah. You get yeah. that the second you see him. Mm, he is yeah. a real, yeah. And, and, and some talk. lived experience there. And I think that's mm. a really important thing too, lived experience to bring to practice um but i guess you know a roundabout way of getting to my point was hearing it all i I thought yep you're doing great it's nostalgic there's lots of amazing things happen but i haven't heard hospital or health social Mm. work necessarily Mm. um and so i thought oh you know i'm I'm no expert at it but i work there and i can have a crack at trying to talk to it and Mm. um try and encourage you know students to do placements there and, and other things it's uh i think it's the place to be yeah. Um, having been through a lot of different services. So um, if it's good for me, maybe it's good for someone else. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And another perspective, which is great to hear, because like we said, we haven't had anybody or we don't know anybody either that yeah. um, works within the public health system. So it's awesome. Yeah. And I think, like you'd mentioned before, Josh, public health is such a large banner 
Mm. Like to mm. even even social work or youth work is such mm. a large banner, and I think mm. something that constantly comes mm. up is that okay, I've got my youth work or I've got my social work. Where the fuck do I go now? Mm. Like you know, and I even remember mm. thinking that when I was studying. So mm. it's um exciting to get different bits and bobs and mm. yeah. And there's something to be said about when you're studying these things and you haven't got work experience before. Mm. Um, I think I had the benefit of being a youth worker and studying social work along the way. Yeah. Uh, that certainly helped lead in to make a bit of sense to some of the, the theory because I was able to apply it to stuff that I knew. And then I was able to, yeah, kind of hone in on some of my placements, including a placement in, in where I work today. Mm. Um, so if people are, you know, it is hard to sort of work out where you want to, you know, how you want to take it, even though lots of it is very transferable. Mm. Um, to find a place that you're happy with to kick it off um, can be tricky if you haven't got that some sort of background. And I think seeing the um, the Facebook group, there's lots of discussions around this that are, mm. that are really good to see. People are seeking advice on what to do next or how to get some voluntary work or part-time work to get that foot in the door. Mm. And that's huge, yeah. even if you're still studying. Mm. Yeah, huge to connect people. Um, I was going to ask, so you mentioned doing youth work initially. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. got you into youth work? How did you go from being the medical paper delivery to yeah, yeah, youth yeah, yeah. work? How did you go from being a drug dealer to <laughs> youth work? <laughs> I was going to say it, but I didn't. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> That's good. Um, I was just a runner. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> I'm not the big guy. The, I think, you know, like a lot of people, um, my big plans, you know, going to achieve great big massive things and, um, satisfy everybody else's goals of what I was going to be. Mm. Um, you know, surprise, surprise, didn't work out. And um, <laughs> I um, had a bit of a um, a couple of years there that was sort of lost in the haze and um, perhaps, um, you know, didn't really achieve all that much. Um, but, you know, with school, because high school ended up falling through, um, I, you know, Spent a bit of time moving between different family members and then and using some services myself in you know ending up in some housing but i always thought whatever the goal was wherever i was going to end up with a career i was always going to have a a year off you know if i got into uni you know when i was year seven i'll get i'll get into uni and but i'll have a year off it's important so i had my year off and then i thought well i've got to do something you know so i was on the other side of it but i still wanted to stick to that that year off just because you know whatever Mm. it was enough to motivate me to get down to the TAFE and um, um, had having had access to some social workers and youth workers myself just had a look at it um, did the course I was fortunate to still be working in the supermarket did the course nothing came up for a couple of years but I was just still earning money and then yeah after um, yeah just kept at it and got a break one time and I was always doing some voluntary stuff like with uh, schoolies week or some high school sort of student aid work. Um, but yeah, it just kind of grew a bit from lived experience. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of built up and built up from, from there and yeah, just keep studying in the end. Yeah, yeah. continued obviously when I yeah. did your social work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, back fumbling my way through a PhD at the moment, but that's uh, that's just a big pile of mess. I don't wow. know if that'll get done, but you just... Yeah, even if it doesn't work out to plan, you know, like all these people put the pressure on year 12 and that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it still happens, but it's there's so many ways to get there. And, um, um, yeah, 
ta- I think TAFE's a really good thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that that exists because um, it's sort of a nice little bridge in. Mm. Um, and I guess the other thing is like this, you know, perhaps it's in my nature or whatever, but just there's always people you wish you could help or mm. wish, wish you could have done more for or, you know, and we all all would have had someone in our, you know, support uh, social network who ultimately killed themselves or um, ended up in a bad, bad place. Um, um, you know, that's an unfortunate reality of, of um, being a human. Mm. And I think you can only get so far with just, you know, winging it as a person if you you do need a little bit of um, that knowledge base behind you um, mm. and confidence and a bit of paper that someone will let you in. <laughs> Um, so yeah, my big break sort of for the youth work thing really came as um, like a, a GP-driven youth service. So it's sort of like a headspace, but pre-headspace. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I got some really good learning from some of the GPs there and psychologists, and um, yeah, just kept on going. And I think hearing the podcast that you're talking to, some of the stuff is really it's really cool. It's taken me back to some of that time, and so much learning and just being able to like wear clothes that are really comfortable and, <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, I'd be sitting out the back, you know, rolling up my rollies and, uh, the, you know, supporting a client who's, um, you know, need to, yeah, need, need the smoke, but you don't give them a smoke, but, you know, they just kind of help themselves to the the, the bowl that's there perhaps um, with, with some stuff to roll their own and you never lose that, by the way. Um, rolling. Right now. <laughs> Um, Which is funny because if you rocked up to our workplace wearing what you're wearing today, there's nothing yeah. wrong with what you're wearing today. Yeah. We'd be like, "Ooh, <laughs> Jeff caught today." Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Looking fancy. So, funny. so I've got my um, yeah, my, my shirt. My you're collar. just wearing a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you wear, I mean, you wear funnies all the time, but sure, they're funnies. Yeah. So. it's um, I used to go even more more serious than this. I used to be the the slacks and the and the you know those annoying sort of. Um, you know the, the black shoes you got to polish. Oh, yep, yep, yep. And I just like it gets me hard. I've ripped, I've ripped a few as I put on weight and get older, and you know, <laughs> leaning over to pick up something. But um, also, I think like I used to wonder why I did it, and um, I, I was reflecting a, a little while back. There's in health, you get so many different people, um, and I used to iron my shirts and everything. Now I just hang them, and they kind of iron themselves when they dry. Um, but I used to sit there and I'd be ironing and ironing and, and um, people would say, well, you know, why do you bother? And, and it's like, yeah, but we've got um, you know, DVA patients, you know, people who've gone to war, people who, who have got horrific circumstances or whatever that deserve some respect, you know, and it's one of the, you know, the values of the organisation. And, and I guess for a while there are certainly... Um, feeling the um, the motivation to do that to out of respect to the patients and the, the lives that they'd led before coming in. So mm. uh, it's a little corny, but um, no. that's how I justified it. And um, it mattered not really that much to me, but it would make a difference to them that someone had, you know, taken the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think over the, say, the last five, five years or so, I think fashion in the, in the hospital and health scene has changed a bit and it's very much driven by the young junior doctors coming through and they're starting to slip into more casual stuff themselves. So mm. yeah. it starts to look a bit weird if I'm the one that's sort of <laughs> a bit dressed up and they keep 
people keep thinking I'm the doctor or the pharmacist or something. You know? <laughs> so so the, the dress code might be slightly different from the community, but uh, yes. social work in a hospital, something like Nat mentioned, we haven't really talked about a lot before. Mm. Yeah. What does it look like to be a social worker in a hospital setting? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for reining me in. Sorry, I'll do that. Um, the, <laughs> um, it's, so it's, it can... It, all right. One of the, the key things about social work is the psychosocial perspective. So we're all looking at, from different roles and contexts, we're all looking at the person within their environment. Um, and so that's no different here. Mm. Um, and the, the thing that changes is the, um, what part of, what stream or part of health are they in? Are they in dialysis or are they in oncology or have they had a stroke? Um, or are they just general medical um, wards? So there's always for social work, always that focus. And how mm. far you take it is going to be relevant to what's happening um, for the patient and their family within that particular setting. So a social worker within a hospital, please mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to get this straight in my head, you would oversee all of those departments. It's not like you would be... Um, the social worker for oncology or would you have like multiple different patients from different sort of disciplines? So, so yeah, a bit of both. Mo- yeah. More often than not, we stream it. Okay. So we will, we've got a, you know, a large team of about, I'm going to get it wrong, but maybe 12, 15 <laughs> here at the acute site um, and there's about 400 and something odd beds. Um, yeah. I don't want to get too much specific. <laughs> yeah. Um, You'll give it away. But there'll be some people who are focused in a general med area. Yeah. And there's a, a team of people that sort of work in and around that. Some people that work in the women's and children's end. Some people that cover oncology. Um, and then there's a few other um, specialty areas, um, which would include like stroke, um, cardiology, um, orthopedic, so broken bones. You know, grandma yeah. fell over and broke a hip. Um, or, oh, nana. Or young dickhead. Crashed his motorbike. <laughs> crashed his motorbike or fell out of the shopping trolley um, and has a broken ankle. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of, this, what I was saying before about you sort of you start gravitating towards a team that you might feel um, comfortable in in terms of the support that you get within that team. It's also the same for um, working in health that you might start to move towards an area that you um, like more. Mm. Um, so some of the areas, more general medical areas, are really short sharp interventions you'd cover ed another is another part that we, we get it um some stuff in but you, you would focus really on what are the psychosocial reasons why a person what that need to be resolved for that person to leave hospital now yeah so it's resolving barriers to discharge um and that can feel you know when i've done that before it can feel a bit like bagging and tagging i've, I've called it before we sort of really just honing in to a particular thing and referring out. So and trying as much as possible to keep people out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, nobody wants to be in hospital, but um, the other side that I prefer working on is where there might be a little bit more um, time. You know, we're not with oncology patients, you're gonna get a bit more time. With stroke or cardiology patients, um, you get a bit more time to sort of tap into their story yeah. um, and how they're adjusting to a new diagnosis or um, a new event that's happened that's caught them off guard um, rather than sort of uh, flare-up of dementia or other things it might be more um, MND progressing um, mm-hmm. or MS flaring up or a new diagnosis of lung cancer and um, you know, 
you're sent in to kind of um, support the patient and their wife around how that's going. Yeah, which yeah. is interesting because, like, I, as you were talking, I was trying to think of situations in which I've encountered a social worker in a hospital. Mm. Um, and I couldn't remember any times. But then what I was thinking about <laughs> when I'd asked you about if social workers do, like, a specific sort of discipline or if they yeah, yeah. get a mix was... I'm a big fan of Grey's Anatomy. Um, oh. But how many times there would be like an abused child that had come in and they yeah. would be like, get the social worker before you discharge. I never, yeah. I guess for me, I'd never thought of it um, in the sense of next steps for people who are being diagnosed with pretty mm. significant illnesses mm. and mm. how that would impact them. Mm. Yeah. And to be annoying, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so people with lung cancer may still have other things going on that need child protection yeah. involvement or mm. family violence services involvement or Aboriginal health or mm. other things that we can um, uh, be conduits to, support, leverage. Um, and I think one of the, the key things in our areas is just giving a bit more time and space to talk to what's happening and build the rapport and engagement so mm. that when you do go to do those other things, it's a bit warmer yeah. or... Um, the relationship exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a women's and children's team and um, a lot of their work can be supporting kids that come in on the ward that may have um, you know, stuff that needs to be investigated um, or weighed up as to whether to go that far. So supporting the teams to uh, make decisions around some of those things mm. um, or through pregnancy care work. So yeah. um, we'll have um, drug dependency, um, um, patients and um, uh, child protection will often be going along with an unborn report. But, yep. um, so there's lots of good kind of pre-birth meetings and communication that happens between our guys and, and child protection around those things. Um, and then, yeah, once, once Bubs is born, sometimes there can be some tricky conversations that need to be had around whether or not um, Bubs is going home with, with mum or dad or whoever. Um, so that can be, yeah, that can be a challenging part of the work. Um, mm. Most of it is that pointy end stuff for, for many of the teens. Um, most people don't need social work. So yeah. there'll be heaps of people coming through the hospital system that don't need us. Um, and so my interest and, and you know, some of my colleagues too is rather than sort of trying to screen, out, screen through everybody, um, like a blanket referral kind of process, it's more around, okay, how do we identify in a more timely way who are the people that really need our support right now mm. um, and I think that's an evolving process that we you know need to always get better at um, and there's so many players in the team but coming back to that point about working within a multidisciplinary versus an interprofessional team when you've got um, when you've really built that sort of team um, relationship and rapport up when you're when you're working in a place for a while they can help they can be part of that yeah. so um, you're all helping each other in, with your own time management and identifying things better for particularly patients at risk. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, who needs that extra time? Yeah. Um, because we haven't, we're always busy, but how do you prioritise your busy yeah. to, for the right people? Um, Does all the early identifi identifying of patients coming in and some potential red flags come yeah. through the nursing staff? Yeah. I'm just imagining yeah. thinking that when I go to a hospital, yeah. that they're the people that see you the most, right? And they, I would imagine they're, they're sort of have become quite good at being like, that's a black eye from 
not yes. from you falling down the stairs. Yeah. Or old mate came in with a broken ankle, falling out the trolley, but he was, mm. he was pissed as, so yep. you know, he's been drinking and maybe that's an ongoing problem. Is that, yes, is that how it happens in hospital? Absolutely beautiful. Yep. Yeah, right. Um, and if it, um, you know, it doesn't get picked up at that point, then you've got, hopefully you, you've got a good relationship with your allied health team. So OTs, physios, speech path, um, dietitian maybe sometimes. Um, um, yeah, because I'm just thinking, I'm thinking in an emergency room, but it's not always yep. in emergency, is it? Like, there's uh, lots that would come through emergency, but yeah. there's pe- plenty of people who would come in for appointments, yep. for, uh, routine appointments yeah, or yeah. scheduled things too. So so there's, so yeah, there's outpatient appointments for dialysis, there's yeah. outpatient appointments for oncology, there's outpatient for women's and children's, there's, yeah. there's lots of clinics happening. And then also through, you know, I've been talking about the acute setting, so when there's a medical emergency and they need to be in a high acuity ward with, um, you know, ratios of nursing and, and clinical expertise because they're not medically stable, they stay yeah. here, but then they can go any number of these things down the, uh, down the uh, flow chart to, you know, whether it's inpatient rehab or aged care or home with any number of home-based services and mm. um, other social workers at the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which uh, I'm all over the place, but I think that point is, is one that's interesting when you, as a student or as someone new coming in with some background experience in community services, when, like as a case manager, you know, the buck stops with you. You know, you're the mm-hmm. one that's kind of the point of call for everyone on the phone and you've got to kind of wrap it all up before, you know, five o'clock on a Friday. Um, Neat little box. Yeah. <laughs> and you're always leaving, leaving the day with so many things. Ah, oh, shit, I forgot to do this, 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 and this within um, the flow of a health or hospital, yeah, social work and health kind of context, there's always someone that can be following up the stuff that's relevant to the community context or mm. the um, ultimate discharge plan or, or whatever it is. So, um, and that can be hard to kind of um, resolve in yourself if you're one of those people that really wants to be the, the person to be the go-to and hold, and, and get it all wrapped up and done in a little box um, mm. because there's so many people that we um, deal with the acute presentation or the you know the new diagnosis just happened so then we we deal with that and then it, they sort of they follow a journey through the mm. things and sometimes it can be straight home from ED mm. other times they can go through any other any number of other ways it's interesting that you mentioned I'm imagining an emergency room because so was I, to be mm-hmm. honest, the mm-hmm. emergency room of our local hospital. But that's probably that's the most likely interaction we have mm. with a hospital is yeah. taking a kid down to ED, having them yep. assessed by a cat, potentially admitted. I can't think of a time that I've taken a young person to hospital in any other capacity. Yeah. So even for, for myself, mm. someone in the field, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> um, to think of a hospital setting and all the different things that mm. happen here, mm. it's not something that I even thought past the yeah. emergency department. Mm. Like I'm still mm. sitting in the virtual lobby, and, I guess. And that we work with mainly young people and their families. Yeah. But the the primary client most of the time is going to be um, the young person. Yeah. Where you know, as a social worker, um, the the difference being that you're working with adults. Potentially, I mean, you have the choice as a social worker what role you apply for. But in this situation, mm. you, you've got a lot more exposure to adults where we don't. We don't and so, yeah. you know, we're probably not going to be dealing with a young person that's got like cancer. Or, or, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So it's going to be a different ball game. But it's something I can definitely, um, uh, lost the word, but like um, get your... Perspective? Um, uh, it doesn't matter. But I can, 
understand where you're coming from um, yeah. because we're that person potentially on in the community end yeah, yeah, yeah. where our young person has um, has ended up in hospital and then you, you've kind of dealt with them in hospital mm. and the communication it comes back out mm -hmm. to the community. And you look at that and think, yeah. what the hell did they even do at the hospital? Yeah. <laughs> We're That's gonna pick up all the pieces again. No, most of the time I'm just trying to read the discharge summary like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's that acronym? I'm gonna go <laughs> Yeah, 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 oh, I do that too. Did they get diagnosed with anything while they were there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, there's, there's, there's still huge transferability of stuff. like. I'm always, so one of the roles I did in the past was um, in a youth and family work role um, in a you know, program around preventing youth homelessness. So a lot of mediation work. Mm. Um, and so that idea of kind of working between the, the young person who needs help reframing things for their parent, you know, what, what the parents are on about, and the same with supporting the parents to understand what the, you know, the kid's on about. Um, and building that kind of, or, or um, been that conduit role between those kind of two competing, conflicting, but ultimately wanting to work together for the same end mm. thing is is very much a big part of what we do. Yeah, you know, um, a massive part of where we get to flex our social work skills and muscles is in family meetings. So when um, uh, people are going along, maybe they're not uh, responding to treatment, they're going to perhaps pass away, and we need to bring the family in to have a discussion. Um, there's language coming from the doctors or, or a number of different people um, and then you've got the, 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 the patient if they're able to be part of the conversation or their family that you need to kind of be that conduit role for yeah um, and you need to have a, a good working relationship with that team to understand where they're all coming from and you need to spend a bit of time uh, quickly getting a rapport with that family so you can understand their key messages or key things they want to get out of it so you come to a mediating kind of space mm. in a very similar way um, and being able to work between those two two parts of the thing mm. um, is, a, is a huge thing and I, I do that well because of the work that I used to do in mm. youth and family work with uh, mediation stuff yeah absolutely so much transferability um, and you would do that in lots of the work that you guys have done so you could be a health social worker too. <laughs> yeah, maybe, well, I'd have to get my social work degree <laughs> yeah, first. that's right. It is yeah. funny though, like that transferability. Like another thing we've noticed, we've talked about is a lot of people that work as, uh, in like the youth work, sort of like maybe more like case management or outreachy roles, is a lot of them do like retail and hospitality work mm. where you're just talking to people all the time, mm. you're dealing with customers, you're trying to help them mm. out, you're dealing with complaints. Like, you know, there's this backwards and forwards communication relationship building even if it's in a small amount of time most likely because you want them to buy something mm. but it's the same principle and mm. it's so funny i guess it makes a lot of sense right that there's those transferable skills but mm. um it's funny that you talked about like the next step again you know that you might have like the retail or hospitality experience you're good at dealing with young people mm. good at dealing with their families but then you sort mm. of take it to another step of like sort of the social work and mm. that more pointy and dealing with like maybe around death and mm -hmm. that sort of more tricky stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you in your role, do you deal with death a lot? I know it sounds a bit bizarre, but no, no, it's, it's great more than probably we would. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, we do. Um, and this sounds wrong, but I love it. Okay. You know, please, please tell I, us more. <laughs> I, I really do. Like, um, you know, I've certainly spent several years working in oncology um, in the past and, and 
why, you know, with, even within oncology, you have different strains, you know, breast cancer, skin cancer, head neck cancers. Um, and I l was looking after the lung cancer and the brain uh, cancer strain, which wow. for the most part, um, you know, it's, it's not got happy endings to it. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's something unique about that environment in that, yes, okay, the person's got a new diagnosis of a life-limiting illness that they might live if they start Googling, they'll discover that they might live for six to 12 months because it's hard to, um, for a doctor to be really clear about that at the start because then you need to see how, you know, what's the particular cell breakdown and what particular treatment and whatever. Um, and I, I guess the other sort of flip side to that is people might come into the hospital system and they've had a car crash and someone's died. Mm. You know, so, it, it, it's a, it's a tricky one, but there's an opportunity in something like um, life-limiting il illness like that, like in, in oncology, that you can spend a bit of time, and it's the privilege of the social work role in that it's huge, and you know it's um, it's an, am an amazing job to be able to sit and listen or sit in silence for a bit with people who are processing that, mm. um, processing what it means. One of my favourite questions is, you know, well, the, the scenario is a common one when you've got the people have come to the clinic, they've seen the the oncologist, they've sort of had their worst fears have been realised. They thought it might be this, but they held on to a little bit of hope. They start the, you know, maybe the wife started crying, so then they get shuffled around to the social work office. Yeah. And they, you know, they're, they're sitting there all red eyed and um, just you don't know quite what they've taken from from what's just happened so you get asked them to explain it a little bit and they're just lost for words and one of my favorite questions that I love asking is when did you two meet you know, and what you know what what drew you to that person like or how how do you want to be remembered um, what is it what does it mean to you to have this um, and what's the other things that you need to get organized but that that opportunity to shift the focus from Oh shit! You know, cancer, cancer, dead, dying—all these things. To okay, um, and it, you know, it's the begin. It's planting the seeds of good grief and loss work, where you're trying to then start telling the story from way back when to be, um, and it, you know, it's narrative therapy stuff. Um, but that whole um, <laughs> um, people processing a loss—it's—it's—it's it's, it's being able to tell a story of what they've lost. Yeah. So if you can start to sh shift the focus rather than, oh, you know, I'm going to be dead one day, I'm going to be dead one day, I'm going to be dead one day, or I'm, they're going to be um, dead one day, and people will often start to daydream about the funeral. You know, what are, you know, what are, what are, what are where, or what, who's going to be there, and what about this? So when did you meet? Oh, you know, they used to cross paths on the train lines or whatever. Um, you know, what, what did you like about it? Oh, he had a cute butt. It's like, <laughs> it's like, these are... Yeah, you bring it back to that human thing, yeah. and you know what what values do you like about that person? You know what? How will you remember them? Mm. How would you want to be remembered? You know who? You know, um, and you can't like the timing can be tricky, and you can't do it for everybody. But when when it's there, and you can do that because they're already very much talking about death, um, it's it's really humbling to be able to have that conversation, and you. As social workers, you get insight into these amazing stories and amazing people that it becomes less about death and dying and cancer, all these other diagnoses. So when you say, 
you know, do you deal with death? Yes, but it's awesome in a way as a social work professional mm. because it opens up something else. Mm. You said it before, it gives you the privilege, mm. which I think is a really, uh, I think that's, if I could say, I think that's mm. the best way that you put it. Yeah. I think having the privilege to participate in that time. Mm. Um, well, you're a part of a yeah. journey, right? Mm. And I think even like another reflection, which is like my mind is like going crazy with my tiny little box of perspective over here mm. because I'm like, well, when we do experience death or a loss, for us, it's a mm. it's a sudden death. It's generally, mm. you know, an overdose or a car accident. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's sudden. You come into work on the Monday, that's what happened. Whereas, mm. yeah. you know, I don't necessarily, I haven't sort of thought about death, I guess, in a different mm. capacity mm. around someone's journey of mm. um, their health. Yeah. Mm. Which, yeah. Um, and you can take that the social work role within that as far as you're comfortable to. Yeah. yeah. So, um, oddly enough, prior to working in that area, I was um, taking a bit of time off to support my you know, now ex-wife, but her father was dying of cancer. So mm. I took some carers leave so she could do that and, and whatever. And so it was incredibly something um, out of worldly, out of you know, normal mm. to be part of watching someone that you respected and who's done a lot for you after a couple of years then yeah. pass away. And to be there when they die is... It's a significant sort of, um, it's something as significant as when you're being there when someone's born. born. Yeah. Yeah. And so a couple of weeks later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm ready to come back. And they said, well, we've moved you around a bit. Mm. Uh, how, how do you feel about working on oncology? Yeah. <laughs> yep, let's do it. Because you get that, there was, there was something in that, that you know that it's okay. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's been really cool. Very humbling. Um, and even to the, the other bit, the other end of it, because that story was around the person at the the start of the, the diagnosis. Some people don't find out until they're very unwell and then they're going to die a couple of days later. But mm. um, again, what's important? What, what are your legacies? How do you want to be remembered? And encouraging family to... One of the things that um, um, is important if you've been around someone who's passing away, what what you notice if they're significant for you, you'll notice that you um, you won't see the things again. Yeah. You, you won't have them there. So what is it that you're going to actually miss? And I often think about paying, encouraging people just to pay attention to little things like the hair on their arm, mm. you know, or the, the sound of their breath or the colour of their eyes, just paying, you know, it's almost being kind of mindful, yeah? Yeah. Sort of bringing it back to, okay, there's... Nothing to say right now, nothing to do right now. Just spend time capturing some memories in a, in a space that um, you're not going to have again soon. Yeah. yeah? So um, that, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is a privilege because sometimes people don't know what to do. Yeah. And if you can just guide them to something like that, um, and, it, and it's something they hold on to. Oh, yeah. People will remember that for the rest of their life. Lives, 100%. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't have realised that or had those ideas if I hadn't gone through that myself. Yeah. Mm. Um, you bring a personal perspective, I guess. It's like mm. people with lived experience then yeah. doing it in the field. Yep, yep, yep. You mentioned, so you were working in a particular area, took some leave, came back. Mm-hmm. There was a reshuffle. Mm-hmm. Of all of the social work roles within the hospital, that you, the different sort of 
ones that you've done? Do you have a favourite? Like, oh, yeah. one that you're like, that's my jam. Yeah, anything brains. Yeah? Yeah, brains are amazing things. Um, there's so much we don't know. Um, and, yeah, I just, yeah. It's, um, it's not good, but they're not good, obviously. Like, yeah. if someone has a stroke or a, or a GBM or, um, like, a, a brain cancer and... Um, but the way that people, the way that, you know, an injury or a something that's going to get better or improve, or the way that things can manifest in different ways, whether it's mood, whether it's um, physical um, a disability, whether it's um, sense of smell, I just find it fascinating. Mm. Um, I don't know jack shit about them hmm. at all. Um, I can tell you if you have something on the left, you might not be able to speak well yeah. afterwards, or you might have trouble swallowing. But that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think the so brain much. would be something, though, you could, like, literally, like, obviously, unless you're, like, a neurosurgeon. But, mm. like, the brain would be something, because I'm quite similar. I find the brain pretty fascinating. Mm. And I'll read, like, bits and bobs along the way, but mm. I fucking, I still couldn't tell you what, like, my mm. hippocampus is or whatever. Yeah. Like, I literally, yeah. <laughs> I wish that wasn't in your brain then. Like, I know this, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I yeah, wish yeah. it was, like, a... Like a muscle in your arm. Or I was about to say because I was talking to you about something to do with the brain once, and you were like, "Are you? Did yeah. you make that up? Is that really a part of the? I can't like remember what it was. A, but... a stroke in the phalanges. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like I can't remember what I said. I can't remember. It won't come to me now because I can't remember. But I feel like it's something that you could continuously research, and you will just only ever scratch the surface, right? Absolutely. We'll never truly understand. Yeah. The brain. Ironically. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the same for the professionals, you know. Um, and the good ones will tell you that. Yeah. It's um, so much we don't know. Mm. And I think that's opportunity. You know, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, when, when you look at things like um, uh, like neuropsychiatry or uh, yeah. the way how people's brains can do things when they're um, experiencing significant um, mental health stuff, or, mm. um, there's opportunity in that. Um, I, yeah, there's lots of lots of things that can go that way, I guess. And, um, yeah, I just, I think you can't hide something in that. Like, so, no, that's not the right way of putting it. Um, I don't know. There's something real, very real and, and um, challenging about that, working mm. in that space. Um, there's, it's very life-changing for people. So it's not like a subtle thing that they need to perhaps modify their world a little bit. Their life's been changed. Mm. Um, the other part, too, too, I think the the brain and is sometimes within neurology we there's these interesting presentations that um, um, can be you know this might not be the right way of putting it and so apologies to anyone out there who's in this category but sometimes you know in the same way that borderline personality disorder gets a, a bit of a bad rap within mental health mm. say, there's these things called functional neurological disorders that suffer a similar kind of fate or, or reputation in that the people are presenting with physical symptoms like they might not be able to walk or they might be having this constant migraine and it's absolutely real to them mm. without a doubt 100% real but there's nothing happening in the brain that people can find it mm. to show you or seizures is another one so there's so people have seizures and they'll come in they'll get plugged into the machine to see if they're having any electrical activity happening within that that they can go yep you know some sort of epilepsy or whatever mm. um it's more functional when there's nothing there yeah 
and um, so, and it's hard because you know then they they sort of walk or you know walk away, they leave uh, with the <laughs> sorry about the um, perception of oh it's all in my head you know oh they just said it's all in my head nobody says that these days by the way but people hear that in the way yeah. they want oh you know it's, it's all in my head it's um, I feel very strongly and there's some good evidence but it's I don't want to be the guy that's always waving the trauma flag. Mm. Um, there's more often than not, there's people with a trauma history in there. Right. Mm. So, um, and this is again where there's opportunities for youth work and other people to look at coming over to health. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that having a understanding of trauma and and the you know the the, the resi kids you know they don't go away after resi you know no. they're the ones that are coming in with some of these symptoms. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it's, you, you know, you, you can you see the names, they, they come around again. Anyway, so I think there's, again, an opportunity there that we don't, we, we currently can't capture anything there, mm. right? So, in our MRIs, in our, whatever they are, different things, our lumbar punctures and all the things that we currently, yeah, it happens. No point faking anything, you're going to get a lumbar puncture and a nerve conduction study. Uh, that's when they, yeah. The, I think there, there's hope that we will be able to capture things better in the future or if we can really do a good job at treating trauma, mm. then we might see less of these things. So um, that's, you know, my mind's always getting a little bit distracted with other things, but I think that would be an interesting space. So whether, whether we can work on how we capture it within the brain, mm. if there is something happening there, or we can... Um, work, support people through trauma to, to do it because we've all seen those sort of you know you would have done the um, like Bruce Perry training or, or something where they show those two brains of the you know um, and I always kind of think well, they're not the same brain like they're kind of out of whack here like, yeah <laughs> one is heaps bigger than the I'm, other I'm, I'm not an idiot here like, you kind of <laughs> but there's certainly um, merit in looking at how trauma does have an impact on brain development and um, it's not quite that pronounced as those sides are but I think yeah there, there's some always some good work to happen in the future around that and when I one of the things I kind of put to you guys not to sort of do my own lead in but when I look at trauma as a topic I personally have been really impressed with the um, what's been called the psychedelic renaissance mm. you know this this movement towards um, using um, I guess yeah less traditional sort of therapies to treat trauma um, and a number of other things but I'm particularly interested in the trauma side of things um, where people who have got treatment resistant post-traumatic stress um, have been going through trials over recent years with MDMA and psilocybin mm. um, and getting good results and to for the people point, listening I'm going to yeah. stop for you and take yeah, it back yeah, two yeah. steps because I'm really excited and I don't know what you're talking about but for people listening can you explain a little bit around the alternative therapies yeah. Yep. So it's... Um, and I think because most people will know what MDMA is, but they right. might not know what psilocybin is. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Psilocybin is the no, active ingredient in um, what people more commonly refer to as magic mushrooms. And a number of, um, I guess, the, the stereotypical psychedelics, whether it's um, LSD, ayahuasca, uh, aboga, and a couple of other ones that are out there are certainly... Um, in the, I guess, the underground therapeutic scene in the western part of um, the world have been 
known about for their therapeutic potential, whether it's Ibogaine for treating um, opioid addiction mm. um, or ayahuasca for, for a whole number of things if people make the, the mission over to the Amazon. Um, and I guess they've sort of suffered over um, a number of years with the yeah, all the, the politics around drugs um, and being lumped into that. Early days when they were being developed, there was lots of interesting research being done back in the 60s and, and mm. 70s around these things for their therapeutic potential. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, there's this you know, massive counterculture movement. People like Timothy Leary are, are well known for you know, saying, you know, um, uh, tune in, drop, you know, what is it, tune in, one of those. There's a, a little slogan he's got, uh, but encouraging people to not necessarily sign up for war and go and fight in Vietnam. So it wasn't helpful for the government. The Nixon administration shut it down and did a quick kind of um, um, uh, it made, made it all illegal across mm. the board. They scheduled it in a way that um, made, puts it in a category of having absolutely no therapeutic benefit, um, you know, high chance of abuse, and just straight away to that kind of Bad end. On drugs. <laughs> exactly, and and that's really gone great. Yeah, we're um, <laughs> winning that war. <laughs> um, so, um, it's been really hard, but there's been some good work. There's a there's a chap called Rick Doblin, who's been working all the way through that in a, in a, in a mob called the you know not the when I say maps you know Melbourne people think of something else, but <laughs> yeah. in this context it's um, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelics studies or, or, or something um, in America and also John Hopkins University have done a lot of good work mm. and Imperial College in in UK but essentially looking at um, MDMA for for the map stuff largely yeah looking at that in PTSD and it's up to phase three which is a huge progress in terms of research cycles um, and we're likely to see you know there's a an application being made to the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia um, last year, and we'll hear some interim results on that next month around the rescheduling from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8. So trying to slowly bring things back into the more therapeutic um, setting, at least to free up research. Yeah. Because at the moment it's really impossible to jump through all the hoops to, to get these things done. Mm. And I would love to, to be part of a world where, okay, trauma happens. Mm. And you know you've got your usual kind of therapies around that, but failing that, then there's this other option. Um, and so when we talk about MDMA, I'm certainly not sitting here saying, "Dude, if you've had some trauma, just you know." Yeah, go get some MDMA caps and have yeah. a big weekend. <laughs> you'll, you'll be right. Um, it's you know you're wanting high quality, you know, produced product within. You know, they're, they're strictly. Um, talking at this point about having like a psychiatrist involved who's writing out a prescription who then works with the person and a therapist to um, over a couple of sessions to administer that dose um, mm. I don't know how you dose it but someone else will know that yeah um, but then spend the time through that journey or that experience in reprocessing it mm. um, and the reason that I wanted to talk about that that thing there's so much more to talk about in that space and I only know a bit, and I'm not an expert, but there's huge opportunity for social workers in it. Mm. There's um, 
you know, I could plug a group that I know, a Melbourne-based organisation called Mind Medicine Australia, who are the, I guess, the um, certainly the legitimate charity and players in pushing this space um, and, you know, leading the way. They've got, you know, some well-backed philanthropists, former politicians on their board, mm. um, and they're driving, you know, change. And they are running a course that this year, um, looking at training clinicians um, and social work. I know a social worker who's got in to um, do what's called a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapy mm. um, to be there when the laws start changing and, and people start doing this work to be there to support the psychiatrists to do the therapy and um, and the patients going through it. And um, a movie, if anyone's interested, that covers this whole thing is called Trip of Compassion. Um, there's, you know, that's set in a in in, in an Israeli context. It's um, fascinating um, and you, they'll take you through the whole thing and show you the whole experience and it's a it's a really big sort of uh, opportunity and, and and sort of booming industry um, and yeah there's lots of good opportunities for social workers professionally perhaps even personally to uh, to go in that space I know St Vincent's in Melbourne are currently doing a trial using psilocybin which is again the the magic mushroom compound or one of the main ones mm. synthetically produced they're not uh, at that point in australia <laughs> they're where they're uh, <laughs> they're up in the uh, up in the pines um the they're doing so dr margaret ross is um a psychologist that works at st vincent's in the palliative care section and she's doing some amazing work with delivering that to people with um end-of-life anxiety Right. So coming back to some of those examples of people that are in mm. diagnosis or even people who might have been gone into remission but they're living with that constant fear of recurrence, yeah. um, they're trialling it for using that um, for people to have a um, assisted journey and therapy, psychotherapy alongside mm. to process that experience. And um, yeah, I mean this, the whole psychedelic experience is another whole another podcast there's mm. plenty out there um because yeah. the theory is in layman's terms right that the the mdma or the psilocybin just opens up doors that you can't open yeah. without being affected with yeah. the with the substance right and that then would allow you to kind of start to open up conversations and break down mm. previous trauma that absolutely you would not otherwise be able to access or access in the same mm. way Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, MDMA can certainly take a person back to that trauma, which is really hard to access mm. for people who have a significant trauma. Um, EMDR yeah. is another one where they try and do a similar kind of thing. Mm. Really fucking hard for people to go through. Really fucking hard. Um, and they, they're living and feeling every bit of it. Mm. Um, and so with MDMA, there's the, the evidence is that people are going to that place in a very much present kind of experience, but they're parts of the brain system um, that are being dampened. So they're not having the kind of the full on traumatic response to it. So they're able to go back, um, sort of relive it for, for want of a better way, but to be able to um, process it in, in a different sort of way and mm. find healing through it. Mm. Um, um, Is the concern around like allowing this to happen, the fact that you'd be essentially like using illegal substances 
or is it the potential risk to the client, do you think? I'm guessing uh, it's political, therefore yeah. it's the drug thing, but... Absolutely political. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. There's... Is anyone doing it around the world now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Like uh, America, I think we mentioned before we started recording, yeah. do it. Yeah. Is it to Portugal? Have they gone down this line with the other I'm not sure. I only know about the states doing it because of Kerwin's yeah. podcast, and he talks about mm. for his complex PTSD, he didn't, um, you know, normal modes of therapy just didn't work mm. for him. He mm. tried multiple different sort of talk therapies and different, like CBT and CBT, sorry, um, and different sort of things, and they just didn't work for him. It just, right. he just could never get to the root of it. Mm. Like it just, wasn't for him so he ended up going to the states and he did the ketamine and mdma alternative mm. um mm. supported therapies um and he's like swears by them mm. yeah. so i'm not too sure of other countries yeah netherlands is big on it yeah. um and i think you know if you can certainly look into the ayahuasca stuff in, in the amazon and I'm, yeah I, yeah i'm not so um familiar with some of that that kind of side of things and where to go mm. but um i think it's yeah a bit more uh, indi- indigenous to the country i think you can get a hold of it in other places mm. but um from listening to other podcasts and things and that's where unfortunately i mean ironically i suppose where i get a lot of information <laughs> is um yeah. is it that, i don't know correct me if i'm wrong that the ayahuasca seems to be more like a soul searching sort of exercise yeah. or is it that you could maybe use it for for both, depending on how it's administered, probably. Yeah, right? I'm not really sure. I, I do see a lot of problems with a lot of this space, and I think ayahuasca is a good example from the little I know that there's opportunity in plant medicines that exist that should be, in my opinion, should be available to anybody who wants mm. to explore their mind, mm. but they've been politicised and or then marketised mm. um, mm-hmm. in, in a for-profit way. And I think... Um, so there's a whole industry around ayahuasca that can influence people's understanding of what it's about. Yeah. Um, but intention is a huge thing. So yeah. coming back to MDMA or coming back to psilocybin, um, intention's massive. Mm-hmm. So um, another good crossover for social work because before you walk in a space, you need to have an intention, and it's very much about prepare, preparing for it and and um, looking to engage with the plants or, or, or medication medicines in a way that you want to actually achieve something. It's not just, mm. um, I mean, you know, some people say it's okay to go off to a doof and, and, and um, you know, pop whatever and that's your intention. Um, that's sort of not what I'm talking about. I understand there's, that's a form of therapy for some people, but if it's just yeah. around doing some um, other therapeutic work in a more kind of traditional way of thinking about it. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, setting setting your intention and being setting your environment and whether or not you have someone else who's safe with you or is up to you. Mm. Um, and just working on a ritual of sorts as well. But mm. your mindset coming into it and what you want to get out of it is huge. Because mm. um, we were chatting on the way here about. Um, we didn't talk the whole drive here. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Sat in silence. Um, she made me listen to one of our own podcasts, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you listen? Um, because you've, ex- this is going to sound funny, but once you explain it, you've been experimenting with mushrooms, but yeah, in, the a magic di- yeah, in a different sense. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's funny because people would have their own experiences and like, I'm happy to share mine. Like I've had magic mushrooms and I don't exactly know what they were, like how it was 
how they come about. It was a mushroom shake in Bali. Right. So it was super low. Full like we did Yeah, it probably was <laughs> like, like there was not really like any hallucinations or anything, but it just put me on a different level. And we yep. all had, but afterwards, and my point is not to brag that I've had this ma- mushroom shake, um, but afterwards there was this feeling of that I'd just been through something. Yeah. And what it was is we just, we, we had a night out. Um, we didn't really start because we were at Bali yet. It was like <clears throat> we were early 20s or whatever. We started mm. drinking later in the night. We just let the shakes do it, do its thing. We had these really intense conversations and we just, mm. we just really vibed. It was just like being high, like on, like if you were smoking cannabis or whatever, um, smoking marijuana. Um, <laughs> but like if you just like, yeah, smoking, but it's just on a slightly different, so my point is that after doing that, and you know, probably on like a lower level, and having having this sort of feeling that I had overcome me of that I'd sort of been through like a bit of a journey mm. that night, yeah. I could only imagine the intensity and the work that you could do mm. with a, like a medical grade, super clean, you know, mm. exactly the dosage and with an intention, mm. the impacts. And what you're alluding to there is is what's missing in Western societies. Mm. And, and I'm not the first to talk about it. I've never had an original idea in my life. But <laughs> the rites of passage stuff. So mm. what you were doing there with, with your buddies and, and you know, doing those things, and it, there's a degree of rite of passage for it. So you've gone into it um, in a particular way and you've come out of it um, different, changed. Mm. And the people around you would also be responding to that kind of change so you, you one you, guy did not respond very well <laughs> all right, all right, all right. But one of one of like eight but yes he did not that's have, good statistics he did not fine. have a good time no and you know and anecdotal evidence <laughs> yeah. um, but but yeah. in the absence of rites of passage that would yeah. have been happening in traditional societies yeah you know what have we got schoolies yeah. yeah 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 which is um, awesome and it's all alcohol that was sarcasm, yeah. by the way, because yeah, yeah, yeah. people listening are like, oh, the like he went to gold. He went to the Gold Coast. Yeah. I didn't go to school. Um, uh, so there's there's potential in that for the future, and, and mm. I think um, I think it's needed. Yeah, mm. I think it's exciting. I think similar to the the journey that we've we've watched play out with cannabis and CBD oil and mm. yeah. the therapeutic benefits that mm. you know I like to think of like the nanas that are using CBD that have suffered autoimmune diseases their mm. whole lives that are, that are mm. just like, oh, drugs are bad, I couldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but, you yeah. know, they're taking CBD and they're seeing phenomenal sort yeah. of results from that. I think that has paved a way for other opportunities with things like psilocybin or mm. MDMA or ketamine, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, I think society needs to get over the concept of it's not like someone's going to a hospital to do drugs and just get high. Like there's yeah, obviously yeah. An, al- an alternative, um, a different motive. Um, and like the reality is anything to excess is going to be poisonous to you, right? So mm. I think it's exciting because well, it paves the path yeah. for other options. Sorry, what were you saying? I was just going to say I don't think they've um, – I don't think there really is a um, – I think they call it like an LD50 or something. Like a lethal dose – it's just so ridiculously high that you couldn't possibly kind of get, Oh, like you'd get have to it. drink like a litre of it yeah. and then maybe you'd die. Or oh, something. when I said that, I mean, if you do okay. anything to excess, it will yeah, be poisonous yeah. to you. So if you sure. go to the gym 24 hours a day, oh, inevitably yeah. you've got an issue. You take drugs 24 hours a day, might be an issue. So there's, mm-hmm. yeah, I meant it in that way, not necessarily yeah, yeah. taking too much. <laughs> Before I lose it, because it, it'll happen, the, the idea of, because I think I broke down a bit around MDMA, but going back to, and again, I'm not an expert on this, yeah, sure. No, but the, the, Sorry, the point around psilocybin is that there's this, and we all do it, we have, we have this kind of self-talk that we do in our mind. There's this 
um, ruminating pathway that we go round and round and round in our head about different things. Um, and it's very much ego-driven in how we position ourselves in the world, how we identify our role as a social worker or whatever. And what for, for some people that are suffering, it can be you're worthless, you're nothing, you're, um, you're a piece of shit, everybody hates you, you know, why try, don't, you know. Um, you know, those kind of things. And they're, um, they're horrible mm. things to live with. So the, the idea of a potentially therapeutic um, use of psilocybin or some of the other ones, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly of that, is that it, it when they're look, doing the brain scans for it, it dampens what's loosely called the default mode network. So it's part of the, the brain's sort of um, uh, system um, network that feeds that ego mm. or that self-talk narrative. And so... Yeah, when you're talking about coming out of that experience, sort of like you went through something, like you changed or whatever, um, there's how you then kind of form new pathways mm. within that. And there's good evidence around um, neurogenesis, so like new um, neurons growing and neurosynthesis, mm. where there's new connections being made. Um, so that's the bio level of as high tech as you'll get from me today. Mm-hmm. As to, that's um, probably as high tech as we can understand. So that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they, they dampen that. You kind of, you lose those automatic default thinking that you have with yourself about being at X, Y, Z or everybody hates me to then be able to kind of, um, amongst all the other kind of, you know, visuals and um, fractal stuff or, you know, amazing connections with God or whatever else that people kind of can connect to. Um, that's a yeah, the, the basis for, for it. And Monash too is also doing some early trials. So it's happening in Melbourne. Is that in a microdosing race, that, you know, a little bit every day, or is that in more like sessions that they would do the psilocybin? Definitely sessions for what we've been talking about oh, okay. up until this point. Because I was just thinking like the microdosing idea, because that voice isn't something that you just get when you go into the psychologist's office or the social work office. Like that's... That's a voice that's ruminating in your head like 24 hours a day. Yeah, and so everyone's got it. The concept of the idea of that being that you could do it and microdose would probably be, but you know, yeah. We're Microdosing is, so this is one of the interesting things about the whole psychedelic medicine or, or space. There's so many different things that it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, this is the complication of it that, um, yeah, there's a lot of things under the one umbrella. That is another very interesting topic um, and seems to, you know, anyone would have, Bill probably know someone who's out there microdosing um, and it seems to be doing well for productivity, um, create, you know, just breaking outside of um, usual thinking patterns. Mm. People don't necessarily feel something different, but they'll look back at a week and go, holy shit, mm. I did all this crap. Mm. I was sort of I was doing outings. I was yeah. like you know homebody or normally I'm quite a miserable person but you know yeah. what mm. I'm having good days yep. yeah um, the research on micro, microdosing is a lot harder because it's um, you know <laughs> it's it's around quantifying it's around um, you know what is real evidence so mm. like yeah. you know randomised controlled trials and other things and, um, but if anybody is at all interested in the microdosing thing James Fadiman F-A-D-I-M-A-N and um, 
Paul Stamets, of course, is the mushroom guru. Mm-hmm. If you're talking mushrooms, you know Paul Stamets. Um, they they talk about some of the um, the anecdotal stuff, particularly James Fadiman. We'll talk about a lot of the anecdotal stuff and coming through to him um, over the years from thousands, tens of thousands of people globally who um, are doing them. It'd be so cool to get someone who's done like a microdosing trial or a mm. the um, Margaret Ross. Yeah, yeah, it would just be so cool to have someone on to hear about this side of it. Like mm. I think mm. because. From, from I'll do the trial. <laughs> we'll get them on. Well, for her trial, and yeah, then we'll do a dying, podcast. Are we just doing this one. in the backyard, or are we going to go to the hospital? <laughs> for her, for, for her one, you've got to be dying, so I don't recommend that. No, oh, no, sure. don't, it's a good thing. But in time, well, look at the Monash. Actually, I, I think um, I don't know what their criteria is, but they're um, hmm, you might find a home there. Yeah. Mm. Um, It'd just be interesting to hear. I think because be. constantly. Whenever I, the reading that I've done or the podcasts that I've listened to, a lot of them are states-based or they're in countries where they're decriminalising drugs, they're doing all this stuff. And I feel like we're not necessarily doing that here. And I I, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. I think about something as as simple and um, how I feel is genuinely needed, but like pill testing, you know, we can't even fucking screw our head on about that. So I think we're... You, I hear and I, I listen and I read things that are over there that are being done, but it doesn't feel like that's something that's within mm. our reach anytime mm. soon. But it, like, it's great to hear that those things are occurring, but it'd be cool to speak to somebody, I think. And I mean, it just in, feels like it's out of worldly to me, like it's in the States or it's so far away. It's kind of like the stuff in Portugal we talked about, yeah, yeah, decriminalising yeah. drugs, or the States have decriminalised marijuana. And, yeah. Like Australia, I feel like we shouldn't be so far behind on some of these things, mm. but we pretty consistently are. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And we've got some, so many differences, like America, between different states. Mm. So, and it's around political cycles. And yeah. it's a it's so much easier for a, a new politician to come in on waving a flag of, um, you know, hard line on this. And it's easier to be you know, anti-something. But to try and be progressive yeah. um, is really hard. And I think you guys have, from memory, or no, it was Ben, who did a shout out to Fiona Patton. Um, mm. um you know, you got one um, amazingly progressive um, politician um, in there. You know, this. Yeah, we won't do politics, will we? No, nah. no. Nah. Nah. We could be there for a Josh. <laughs> but it's um, it's a long way to go, and um, I think one of the one of the things that might help psychedelics along the way, um, and uh, is that there's money in it. Ah. Well, I don't like that idea. That's a bit where it loses me because mm. I think you're undermining a lot of things about the integrity of it all. Mm. Um, but there's a whole commercialising. Um, there's a psychedelic index now in the in the stock exchange. There's people, you know, former mining company people moving over and seeing the the opportunity not in you know making mushrooms for people to eat, but to refine different methods for synthesizing psilocybin mm. and yeah I mean that that I could talk for hours about my annoyance with that but because I'm more leaning towards the the idea of plant-based medicines rather than mm. deriving one chemical from this chemical to do and, and create it synthetically but yeah. that the existence of that money side of things and uh, you know the lobby, the lobbying groups that can come with that, 
um, might actually see um, things happening a lot sooner than, than that. But it'll still be very clinical. It'll be psychiatry based. It'll be um, again opportunities for social workers to be trained in that particular therapy to then be able to help people through uh, who want to access it. Um, the the parallel to CBD. Um, so that, that's been a really good thing, but there's so many fuck-ups with that whole scene, mm. and it's certainly not an accessible thing for everybody. No, and I think that's the sad thing about it. So many people that might want to... Ow, <laughs> really punch myself in the chest. <laughs> Somebody that might really want to access, you know, CBD oil mm. for themselves for whatever reason. There's so many crocker shit websites out there oh. that are like cbd 100 mm. percent authentic blah, blah blah and it's just like all these vulnerable people are just getting mm. like they're just being taken advantage of and it's a mm. fucking crock but mm. i that's the other i guess the, the cost of it you know? yeah yeah so if i'm a which i'm not but if i were someone who was um even from a harm reduction point of view right? mm. so i'm smoking weed every day to treat my autoimmune thing mm. or my whatever um, and then I think well you know I'm, I'm sick of hustling I'm sick of you know having a dodgy couple of plants in my backyard um, so alright I'll go and speak to my GP find out a GP who's going to prescribe and then go to the chemist who I, it's all a bit you know um, uh, secret who's, who, which, where the, the, the pharmacy is and then you get onto it and it's like 200 bucks a bottle yeah and you've got to buy three bottles up front yeah and it's like fuck dude yeah that's great for Rack, and that's great for mm. um, people who have um, got means. Mm. But as a social worker, and it's about you know mm. uh, making sure people have got equal access to and opportunities to things to achieve their, their optimal. That's bullshit. Mm. You know, and that's because of just the the politics and, and the, the shit way that it all gets through. So we may have a very similar thing with um, psilocybin and MDMA, um, and other kind of plant-based um, medicines that come through. Other, certainly other groups exist out there, you know, it wouldn't have to go too far on Facebook to find even Melbourne-based sort of psychedelic society groups um, who are, um, or even um, more other, very interested in the plant-based side of things, people who would rather see people just be able to, like it all be decriminalised, you mm. know, and, and not have to worry about that whole, Scene, but unfortunately, it's a, there's a lot of money in it for people, mm. and um, so keeping it illegal benefits some very rich and powerful people. Mm. Money and politics. What a I keep saying crock today. Where what? did I get that from? Yeah. We're making fun of like some old old timey sayings, and oh, yeah, what a crock of shit. I reckon he's like, yeah. a, it's like a bit of an old timey saying. Can I tell you a funny story before we sort of start to wrap it up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. So, I it's like around like edibles and stuff. I was going to um, say no effort. I don't think I've told this story before on the podcast, but if I have, it doesn't matter. So I live in Belgrave, which is, if anyone doesn't know, it's like Puffing Billy. It's in the Dandron Ranges. It's the a bit wizard like, is there. There's a wizard there. Like, it's kind of like a, people might go like, oh, it's kind of like a hippie town. It's not a town even. Like, it's, yeah. Anyway. I live in Belgrave and <laughs> we got we got given ages ago. Uh, <laughs> I know this story. Don't you have to talk about the podcast? <laughs> we got given ages ago a cactus from a friend of ours, and it's oh. like a baseball bat. That, yeah, that's it was huge. How it looks, and yeah. it was in a pot plant. Sorry, it was in a pot. 
So it's about the same size as a baseball bat, straight up in the air, in a pot, and it had spikes. It was one of those. Yeah. And it always fell over. So many good cactuses don't mm. have spikes. Some don't have spikes. Some you oh, can I guess touch. some are like fluffy. fluffy. Right, yeah, yeah true, yeah. true, true, so true. Is, okay, I take it back. So every time we had to move this thing, I always had to put fucking gardening gloves on. Yeah. And, like, and I, I just hated it, and it was just annoying. It was cool, right? But... So, given that Belgrade is kind of like a bit of like a hippie sort of space, there was a roundabout, and mm. someone had decided to create a. It was called a community um, garden. A community garden, but for succulents, it was called the succulent roundabout, and it had a sign, and the community contributed to it, and they put their succulents, and people came to plant their things there, and so I had this really frustrating but cool cactus, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do my bit for the succulent roundabout and I'm going to go and plant my cactus in the roundabout. I wish I could have watched you plant that So cactus. I carried the fucking thing all over. Like, I parked my car, dodged the cars as they were going around the roundabout. It's a busy roundabout, yeah? Yeah, it is. With this massive like cactus in my hands with gloves on. Put it down. <laughs> ran back over to my car, got the shovel because there's not like a community shovel. Mm. I had to go get my shovel from the car. Hey, note to Belgrave community, yeah, get there shovels. Should be a shovel. The yeah. thing, it's not there anymore. That's the oh. roundabout didn't last very long. Uh, got my shovel, went over, dug the hole, planted the cactus, went home, drove past the roundabout a lot of the, like often to go places, and I saw Wait, my, my big old cactus like <laughs> sticking out of the ground, right? And yeah. one day it was gone. And I was like, and there's a there was a Facebook group for the the, the succulent roundabout <laughs> for some reason that had like seventy members or whatever. So I jumped on there and I was like, hey, guys, guys, where's my San Pedro? <laughs> did someone take my cactus? Or does anyone know what happened? And then like so quickly, someone replied, yeah, that cactus is the type of cactus that you can cut up and get and high off. Get high off. And so someone's probably stolen it. Yeah. And I just replied back. Fucking Belgrave. <laughs> Someone stole my cactus to get high and I had no Are you more mad, A, that they took your cactus from the roundabout or B, that you didn't know that you yeah. could get high off it? I've never tried and like when I've had this conversation, it sounds like I've tried all different drugs and shit. I haven't. Like I've smoked weed. I've had a mushy shake once. There's, that's it. I've never tried ecstasy. <laughs> I did speed once or twice on a, on a New Year's Eve. That's the extent of it, right? So I've not done anything else. Getting to know Josh today, Jesus. Yeah. But like, so I don't even know. My point though is I don't know if I would have tried it. Right, Like right, I don't know yeah. if I would have. Because I think you might have to boil it up and mm. and dry it and this sort of stuff. Like Paul You're looking at Paul and I like we're just in the kitchen like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it sounds like this. Listen to the podcast. That's where I get all my <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm more annoyed that someone stole it. But it's also a little bit poetic. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. that someone stole it and probably got super high. And I, I, I imagine that... You probably don't need a lot to get high. Um, and it was a big major I can dip. confirm I've never got high off a cactus, yeah. so you can stop looking at me for I, confirmation. I, I don't know um, about how much, but I know there's there's definitely a market in it. And, uh, and um, I mean, so I could have sold it. You could have made some bulk money. And Imagine well, that. The, you've, you've paid it forward. Yeah. Like, so you've, yeah. you've contributed to the, yeah. the economy at a time <laughs> that it was needed. At the Belgrave. And they hopefully grew it and shared, you know, hopefully. amazing experiences with it with a lot of other people. But okay. yeah, you go any trip to a botanical garden and the cactus section is <laughs> lots of uh, butchered so, cacti apparently. I had no idea. Unfortunately. So, I've yeah. never observed that, but I'm going to keep an eye out now mm. for all cactuses. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that's my story. I liked it. I Thanks liked for it, sharing. I do like that story. Yeah, it's pretty funny. You dag. Well, I guess... We will surprise you yeah. with our oh, yeah. 
final question. How much of a surprise? Just to keep you on your social. No, I've not been listening, so you know. No, I can't remember what it is. That's good. Hey, don't worry. Sometimes <laughs> I forget what it is. Um, so the final one is if you had any words of wisdom or pieces of advice for either new workers, maybe you reinvigorate some stagnant ones, what would your piece of, <laughs> what would your words of wisdom be? Well, um, I mean, curiosity keeps getting mentioned by a few people and I'd second that, third that. Um, I think the transferability is huge. I think, what were your words of wisdom? Um, did I jot any pre-notes for this? I love that you've got pre-notes because that's mm. just me. That's right mm. up my alley. Mm. 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 You'll never catch me out. That's no, not true. <laughs> catch um, me out all the fucking time. I don't, um, it's the one that I wrote. Like, I guess it's just something that I'm kind of uh, learning or, or kind of figuring out a little bit more myself as I sort of look at leadership stuff. Mm. Um, and when I, I think, like, Ben, the mm. previous person, I mean, that's that's leadership, that guy. But it's not my kind of, like, I can't do that. So yeah. when, when I think about how I become a leader, one of the things that I was reflecting on is, like, I would I never ask someone to do something that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's relevant all the way through. Yeah. I think it's relevant in resi. Mm-hmm. So I used to, you know, way back when I was supervised a resi for about 12 months. Um, and... Mm. And it's important not to be asking people to do something that you wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it, it, it's it's a different take on leading by example. Um, and I think good leaders will come in and into a new role and you see them, they get their hands dirty quick. They show people that they can do it. Mm. Um, and you need to do that. Um, and you need to be able to do it to keep it fresh for you. So no matter where you are in any of it, um, whether you want to go down research ways or leadership or policy, keep fresh in the practice that you're talking um, about. Yeah. Or dictating services around or or asking people under you that aren't getting paid as much as you um, who are looking to you for wisdom and advice, mm. show them that you can do it too. Yeah. So, I don't know. I wasn't expecting to say that as much, but this, that, that leadership concept's definitely yeah. been mulling around for me. Mm. And... Uh, how do I do it? Um, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> That's right. Along the way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, probably that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. Oh, so sorry. cool to know. Thank you. Jinx, jinx, personal jinx. <laughs> I'm just gonna watch this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit too late in the day for us. I think we've lost the plot. You go. Sorry. No, it's okay. Nah, thanks he's for inviting us down and reaching out. We really appreciate it, and yeah. it's been a really cool conversation. I feel like we've scratched the surface, you know, mm. but. Um, I feel like we could have been like, here for hours. Yeah, mm. and I feel like um, coming down to Geelong is uh, something we can do again. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we could catch up. Yeah, happy See to meet you right next. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for coming down. I, I love that it's um, given us space and a time for it. I'm not usually one for talking publicly much, so uh, thanks oh, for the three of us here. That's yeah. the beauty, right? That's yeah, the yeah, thing yeah, about yeah, podcasts, yeah, yeah. they can see you. <laughs> <laughs> so, cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.